On a Thursday, time for us to begin our midday program here on KRVN. We've got lots of things to talk to you about. There's uh, lots of issues out there for sure. Jason Jorgensen's in here along with Bob Brogan and Susan Littlefield as we uh, check around the departments and see what's going on. Let's start it out with Susan Littlefield. Well, thanks, God. Here's what's happening on a midday from the farm team. We're going to kick it off as I talk with Jenny Ift at 1219 about some non-traditional financing and trends and issues that they're seeing coming out of Kansas. Then at 1245, we will catch up with Brian Brigham as I talk to him about macroeconomics. And then at 117, we're going to talk heifer replacement. That's a midday from the farm team. All right. Thank you so much, Susan. I appreciate it. Let's turn it over to Jason Jorgensen and uh, Loper Volleyball team finally getting a chance uh, to uh, scrimmage at least. Yeah, to do something. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have four scrimmages coming up. One of those is tomorrow night. That's first Blue Gold scrimmage. Starts at 5.30. They will play five sets. We'll hear from Coach Rick Squires about what it's been like to, well, practice, but you don't have anything on the horizon to aim for. Uh, There's been some talk of them potentially getting to play some games in the spring, but the MIAA kind of shot that down again last Mm -hmm. week, so they're kind of just there right now. But Mm -hmm. they've had some big-time practices with a lot of talent on either side of the net. Uh, if you'd like to hear my complete interview with him, you can find that on the podcast page at com. Another big day for baseball. Four more games. Some of these series may come to a close. Uh, your Padres are up against the wall against the Dodgers, who found a way to hang on and win it last night 6-5. to five. But you should just Can't be happy that your Padres made the playoffs, yes. they advanced past the Cardinals. Yes, first time in 22 years that they'd won a playoff, and yeah, I know, but boy, I tell you, they had the momentum. Tatis hits that ball to straightaway center, and, and Cody Bellinger reaches up and grabs the momentum right away. From yeah, to, uh, Dodgers have a nice team. Uh, you and I spoke earlier this morning. They've shelled out a lot of money. They had a bunch, so that makes a difference normally this time of year it does but look at the race you know they had didn't do that so much and they're beating the yankees right now and now up two to one of that series yeah. but they've always done a nice job yeah. of spending their money very wisely right 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 uh, <laughs> it is what it is thursday night football tonight not a bad matchup okay if well. you say so <laughs> it's better than last week's yes <laughs> Sorry, Broncos fans. It is better than last week's. All right. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate it. Let's turn it over to Bob Brogan now. How are stocks doing today, Bob? Stocks rising on Wall Street as hope remains that Washington can approve more aid for the economy. And after a report suggested the pace of layoffs is slowing a bit, though it's still pretty high. Also, the number of Americans seeking unemployment benefits fell slightly last week and uh, evidence that job cuts remain elevated seven months into the pandemic recession. Also, Monolith Materials plans to build the country's first large-scale carbon-free ammonia plant at uh, Hallam, Nebraska. Those stories and more in the business world. That's certainly good news. Uh, Stocks are up green across the board for the most part right now. Let's turn it over to Clay Patton and see what he's got for us. Clay? 
Well, thank you, Scott. And right now we have a mixed grain market on our hands. To dive into that deeper, we go to Mike Zuzel with Global Commodity Analytics. And Mike, yesterday we were talking about it was kind of important to see wheat being the leader to the top side, but now we go 24 hours and wheat's the leader to the downside. Is this some signaling ahead of the report, or is this just some light profit-taking and, produ- and uh, traders trying to reduce that overall risk exposure? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be meaningful from a technical standpoint and from a standpoint of the funds and their length. With with record open interest now being posted or expected in some categories uh, for the soybeans clay, we can probably assume that we're now up to 2012 levels as far as net long positions by managed money here at this stage of the game. And so I think wheat is our leader, has been our leader. It's the one that made the five-year highs first. And so today's weekly export sales up about 27% versus the four-week average, but really only about 19.5 million bushels with zero being purchased, at least outright, uh, as we know right now, by China. I think this, along with the technicals, and that objective of 615 in the soft red wheat, these are the two things I think are bringing in some long liquidation. I wouldn't doubt that it is some uh, speculative or hedge fund money that's pulling the plug here because the USDA report. And what kind of a surprise can USDA give us when the grain stocks was such a surprise? And we've got rain in Europe starting to come as well. And then in the in the broad picture, I'm looking today at the WASD estimates for tomorrow. And realistically, yes, they're sha- the, the average analyst estimate shaves a little bit off from that September to the October report. But then when you look at 2019, what a stark difference. Even though we have been dry and we haven't had the best growing conditions, the fact that planting was on more of a regular schedule, we look to have a significantly larger harvest. Is it? Are we offsetting that, though, with the strong uh, export demand so far? Well, I think we could be, but I think it goes back to the yield side of the equation. This is going to be where the battle line set up is can the exports offset in terms of higher exports because most of us think that USD is going to raise the export demand for corn, beans, and probably even wheat. Can that be offset um, by any kind of changes, or will it be supported in terms of a tighter supply by changes in the yield. And I think anecdotally, the yield numbers that I'm getting, for the most part, are very, very strong in soybean country all around the United States Corn Belt. I talked to a producer near Grand Island. He got around 50-60. I talked to a producer over by Bloomington, Illinois. He got 50-60. Both these areas got very hard hit this past season with really dry weather, but yet they're still coming in slightly below their APH, and then you've got other producers that are really ringing the bell at 70, 80-plus bushel bean yield. So I'm not sure the USDA is going to give us a yield cut tomorrow, but that's going to be real important. Now to the livestock and lean hogs. They are really moving. And finally, we have December wanting to catch up to October just a little bit here today, narrowing that spread to nearly $10. And then we see the export sales this morning, 60,000 metric tons of marketing year high, and China right there in the lead. Although, should we be concerned they canceled 1,200 of that? Well, maybe so. I mean, I think right now you don't have to worry about it because that number, that 60,200 metric ton number with China being the number one buyer was 52% above the four-week average. That's saying something given the strength that we've had in the export sales for the pork. Beef also coming in 14% above the four-week average with South Korea the number one purchaser. So some of those trade agreements that we've put into place, they're starting to pay off when it comes to the meat. So we got good numbers on the demand side. We had a decent fed cattle exchange yesterday, and so the fat cattle feel pretty good. Hogs feel very good, and that leaves the feeders technically kind of in limbo. So watch the fat cattle in terms of being able to get follow-through here. Otherwise, feeders may start to pull down on them again, I think. 
Again, we're talking with Mike Zuzlo, Global Commodity Analytics. Learn more at globalcomsresearch.com. To remember, training futures and options involve risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Time for us to take a look at our weather and how it's affecting agriculture for us and around the world. And it's a lazy, hazy sort of Thursday. As uh, Man, it, you know, it really looks like he- relatively heavy cloud cover right now. But is it the clouds and the haze coming together, yeah, Paul? Yeah, it, it is a combination. We do have some thin cirrus clouds, very okay. thin, high-level clouds out there. But a lot of it is smoked. It is a infiltrated our area so the hazy sunshine definitely in full force today but and it's holding down the temperatures right now most of us still in the upper 60s to low 70s and still some upper 50s to low 60s from broken bow and ore down through southwest nebraska into northwest kansas and northeast colorado and And, the panhandle and that's where the heaviest concentration of this haze is right exactly yeah that haze has been known to uh, of course hold down the temperatures but we are still expecting highs to make it into the mid to upper 80s in the current forecast because we will see an increase in south winds as the afternoon goes on with the warm front lifting back to the north. Now, for the folks in northeast Colorado, that air quality is not very good, is it? Exactly, yeah. They have an air quality alert for northeast Colorado through at least 9 tomorrow morning. Won't be surprised if that gets extended uh, for uh, low air quality due to the wildfire smoke from the wildfires there in Wyoming and Colorado. Well, once again, most of us with upper 60s to low 70s for temperatures and upper 50s to low 60s from Broken Bow and Ord down through North Platte, Ogallala, southwest Nebraska, northwest Kansas, and northeast Colorado. But we will see a nice warm-up for today. A ridge of fine pressure will continue our string of temperatures that are 15 to 20 degrees warmer than normal all the way through tomorrow. That ridge of high pressure also helping to keep the jet stream to our north. Near critical fire weather conditions possible today, especially over southwestern areas, extreme southwest Nebraska and northwest Kansas, and a red flag warning for this afternoon for that high fire danger. Now, a warm front and some south wind gusts into the 30s will increase the humidity across the central and east and hold down that fire danger. The upper-level smoke from the wildfires in Colorado and Wyoming somewhat thick today. Of course, it's going to be appear fairly cloudy, especially when that smoke combines with the thin clouds. And then when the sun is at a lower angle later today, like we saw last night at sunset. And then, of course, once again, probably tomorrow morning at sunrise. A cold front by tomorrow night will cool our temperatures slightly to just 10 degrees above average for the weekend. So still a nice weekend expected and cooperative for the harvest effort. Another cold front will bring a small chance of some rain and thunderstorms by Sunday night. Right now, the forecast model is trending lower for the expected rain amounts. Much cooler air behind the front will drop our temperatures to seasonal levels for Monday and Tuesday. Northwest wind gusts to 30 are currently expected for Monday morning. Another warming trend will increase our temperatures to slightly above normal by the middle part of next week. In the current long-term forecast, seasonal or near-normal temperatures are mostly likely for Nebraska and Kansas Tuesday through October 21st, but some warmer air does look to be getting closer from the west, and I have seen some long-term forecasts that indicate we may not even see a freeze this month and maybe not even a freeze until November 7th in central Nebraska. Oh, my goodness. So 
you wow. know, it's a long way out, but you never know. Uh, mostly dry weather is very likely with below normal rainfall expected for Tuesday through the 21st for Nebraska, Kansas, and the central U.S. In the latest regional drought monitor, only 2% of Nebraska remains drought-free from Lincoln to Hebron. That's the only part of the state that's drought-free right now. Most of Nebraska abnormally dry to a moderate drought. Along and south of I-80 from Hastings to Ogallala and areas north of Wahoo to Plattsmouth in the east are in severe drought. A large part of the Nebraska Panhandle and Cumming County in the east are at level 3 extreme drought. Now, Kansas dropped a percentage point to 22% drought-free. Much of Kansas abnormally dry to a moderate drought. Severe to extreme drought continues along the Kansas-Colorado border from Wallace County to the southwest corner. Now, if you think... Nebraska and Kansas are dry right now. Get this, 59% of Colorado is at level 3 to level 4 extreme to exceptional drought. So most of Colorado right now in extreme to exceptional drought. In the markets, key weather factors include dryness and drought concerns along with fears of hurricane damage in the Midwest and Plains. Dry weather through the end of the week will continue to favor row crop harvest. Rainfall for the next two weeks will be limited and drought is increasing in the western Midwest with northwest Iowa now in extreme drought. For the southern plains, soil moisture for wheat and pastures is declining and currently only the southeast part of the southern plains is drought free. Drought also building in the northern plains just over a year after record wet conditions. Hurricane Delta's landfall Expected tomorrow afternoon or evening with 150 mile per hour wind gust. Delta not expected to become as strong as Laura from six weeks ago, but Delta will hit many of the same areas Laura hit where recovery continues. Heavy rain from Delta will disrupt the harvest and threaten to cause significant damage to cotton. The cotton nearly all harvest ready and very vulnerable to rain and wind damage. You know, uh, I think I saw somewhere that the average first day of freeze in Nebraska is usually this that first week of October, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of in that area. Yeah, about thirty. Yeah, when we hit a thirty-two, you know, degree morning, and then right. the, then the hard freeze later on in the month. Yes, but it's just we're you're talking November <laughs> before a freeze. Yeah, it's it's, just... it's a potential. Yeah, because I took a look at one of them yesterday, and they kind of dated out, and looks like November seventh is the First time we may even hit just 32 for an overnight low. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that is just what a what a year. Yeah. What, a, what a year. It's serving something. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Where do you go to check in on your weather? Weather tab, krvn.com. Some have a worry we might be relying too much on assistance from the government. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Jennifer Ift is an Associate Professor and Extension Specialist in Agricultural Policy at Kansas State University. I understand this concern. There's two, there's two different issues here. Um, right now, government payments are making up a huge share of farm income. And a lot of these are ad hoc payments. So the big question I have is how are lenders and farmers going to make decisions this winter and this spring about production if they don't know what's going to happen, you know, what's the safety net going to be next year. So I think to some degree the high level of ad hoc payments does create uncertainty. Um, So how can you make farm lending more predictable I think is an important question. Did I say farm lending? How can you make farm policy more predictable? How can the federal farm safety net be more predictable is an important question for everybody. And she explains why we're seeing some of the traditional banks step away from lending. 
Right, right. So in terms of traditional banks, what you have is the very largest banks have been stepping away from farm lending for a long time. Um, I think historically, you know, when times are good, they tend to move in and they move out. It's not totally new, but I think a big part of it is that to lend to agriculture, you really need to have specialized knowledge and understand the risks um, and understand the different issues. So it's probably in a lower margin environment, it's harder for them to navigate that challenge. That's my best understanding. Um, it also could be related to other risks outside of agriculture that these banks are facing. And when it comes to non-traditional in agriculture, sometimes it's hard to find out those interest rate informations being privately owned. Right, right. That's that's why I like working at it. Sometimes you're trying to trying to to paint a picture when it's it's really a puzzle. Um, and I've been, I've been able to you sort I've sort of been able to piece together a lot of conversations in industry um, with existing data, and also I think it's important to exist, ex invest in new data sources. So I am trying to use farm management data, UCC filings, um, trying to be creative in how we try to understand this space. And she talks about how an ag producer can go through all the information when it comes to non-traditional financing. I think it makes farm management um, definitely more challenging. Um, so you have a lot of choices and competition, and that should be good, but you have to be careful. Um, so, so I would say, um, and can certainly for a farmer, they can shop around and they can get information about the different products. So one thing I would say is don't look at just interest rates. You want to look at the terms of the loan. You want to look at product prices, if that's relevant. Um, how is it going to affect your overall your farm operation? What type of collateral do you have to put up? Are you willing to do that or not? So really try to understand the broader impact of taking on different types of credit. Don't just look at the interest rate. And sometimes it's easy to get what the interest rate is. I suppose it could be. I haven't seen a lot of evidence one way or the other, but it is something that I think producers need to be careful about. Um, I think non-traditional um, lending could be as high as 20% because some of the information is privately held. We're not exactly sure. And you might think non-traditional is risky, but... Not necessarily. Um, I think it depends on the type of product that's offered, what type of collateral you have to put up, what position the farm is in. Because again, because I'm defining non-traditional so broadly, it doesn't really depend necessarily on the lender. It depends on the, the, the position the farm is in. Jennifer If from Kansas State University. I'm Susan Littlefield, the World Radio Network. It is time for Midday Sports. Jason Jorgensen stepping in. Well, we're talking volleyball, something we haven't really discussed a whole lot this fall. No, because the Lopers haven't had any games to play. Uh, they're going to try to play four blue-gold scrimmages. The first one is tomorrow night starting at 5.30. While they haven't been able to have any games, head coach Rick Squire says there have been some spirited practices. You know, when you don't get a chance to, to play opponents, I mean, some of that just kind of manifests itself in the practice gym. And so we've had some really spirited practices and... You know, there's there's good players on both sides of the net in practice in every position. My complete interview with Coach Squires can be found on the podcast page at krvn.com. Now, there's no admission charge tomorrow night if fans bring a canned food item or if you can show that you've downloaded UNK's new uh, fan app. Uh, the food items will be donated to the Big Blue Loper Pantry. There will also be social distancing at the Sports Center. So keep that in mind, masks will be required per UNK campus policy 
format now is for two teams to play five sets, estimated end time around 7.30. So they're just trying to make the best of a bad situation. And Coach Squires put together a couple pretty decent teams there. I would say. Now, when will they play regular season games? They don't know. know. That? Okay. That, that's, that's in limbo. They're in purgatory right now because they've, uh, they've heard a lot of things. Uh, there's quite a few schools in the MIAA that do not want to play at all. There's the top third that would like to play. So now, if they were to play, or are you thinking the spring? Spring, maybe it okay. might be a type of thing in which they can do what the football squad did and go out and find their own games. Okay, that's right. that's what they're hoping. But uh, and I'm sure they would if they if they're oh, yeah. able to do that. If, okay. if they can, they want to play. In fact, right. Talked to Coach Squires this week. He said we, we'd play a JUCO team. <laughs> just want to play. They just want to play somebody else. Yeah, understandable. Uh, this is kind of a cool deal. The Storm produced six NHL draft picks yesterday in the NHL draft, tying a team record for the most players with ties to the organization being drafted in a single day. Just continues to show you the type of hockey talent that rolls through Carney and the USHL. Big day for baseball in a little bit. Miami against Atlanta. Atlanta with a chance to uh, finish off the Marlins. You know, it's easy to win postseason baseball games if you don't let the other team score. And that, that's that been the Braves pitching staff here in the postseason. Now, it's not like they're scoring a lot either. But again, winning 1-0, 2-0, doesn't matter. And they've been solid so far. We'll see how far that takes them. Oakland at Houston later on. Then tonight, you have the Yankees who are suddenly down 2-1 to Tampa Bay. And Scott Foster's San Diego Padres probably walking the plank tonight against the Dodgers a little after eight. But let's be honest. We all knew the Dodgers were, and they're expected to get to the World Series. But valiant effort so far by San Diego. Uh, the Dodgers should get to the World Series, but there's been other years in which they should have gotten to the World Series, and that didn't happen. Also, the Titans have another positive coronavirus testing, raising the outbreak number to 23. Their facility remains closed, and the team remains prohibited from any in-person activities. Also, the Patriots are not practicing today for a second straight day. Mm -hmm. There's been some thought there, especially with the Titans. They're like, hey, let's just have it get it over with so we don't have to deal with it later on. But still, tough time for them. Patriots-Broncos game in question from what I'm uh, hearing. So if they do play it, may not be Sunday, possibly Monday or whatever, Tuesday, who knows. If you're the Broncos, this might be a decent time to get the Patriots. Sure, of course. You can win back-to-back games. <laughs> Is there an asterisk? If it's... No, okay. no, no, no. no. We'll, we'll, we, they, they need the W any way they can get it. So, All right, that's sports. For more, find it anytime at krvn.com. Thank you very much. Time for midday news. Our own Ellen Simmons has stepped in, and well, we are. Uh, what is this? The day fifteen, day twenty of the Bailey Boswell 13, trial. Thirteen. I don't know. We'll have to ask Dave on on his hard, next report. Hard to keep count at this point. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, I know you have another report as the the trial continues. So a woman who had a relationship with Bailey Boswell and Aubrey Trail was on the witness stand this morning in the murder trial of Boswell being held in Lexington. KRVN's Dave Schroeder reports. In 2017, and shortly after her high school graduation, Anastasia Golyakova, a Russian immigrant, met a woman on Tinder who identified herself as Jenna. Jenna was actually Bailey Boswell. Golyakova said she was paid a $200 a week allowance during the relationship. She also sold stolen antique items on eBay and at an antique mall in Lincoln. At the time, she was not aware of talk of her being murdered by another woman with Boswell and Trail. 
She said she never met or knew Sidney Loof, the woman Boswell is accused of murdering in the trial. Dave Schroeder reporting from the Dawson County Courthouse. Five newly elected Winnebago Tribal Council members have been sworn in. The Sioux City Journal reports that Tribal Council elections were held Tuesday and the winners sworn in on Wednesday. The top vote-getter in the election was Laurelli Hope Decora with more than 21% of the vote, followed by Victoria Kitchen with 20%. Brian Chamberlain came in third, and Rona Steeler and Thelma Whitewater followed. Kachayan was appointed tribal chairwoman on Wednesday. Chamberlain was, cha- excuse me, Chamberlain will serve as vice chairman and decor as secretary and Steeler as treasurer. Republican U.S. Representative Don Bankin has scored a big endorsement from a former political rival who lost to him in 2016. Former U.S. Representative Brad Ashford, a Democrat, announced he will support Bacon in this year's general election. Bacon is running against Democrat Kara Eastman in a competitive race for Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District, encompassing the Omaha area. Ashford lost his seat to Bacon in 2016 after serving one term in Congress. He released a statement announcing his endorsement minutes before a televised political debate between Bacon and Eastman. Ashford, a former state lawmaker and Omaha mayoral candidate, has switched parties several times over the years and pitched himself as an independent-minded moderate. A $1.9 million grant is being awarded to the city of Valentine to make stormwater infrastructure improvements needed to protect businesses from flooding. It is made possible by the Department of Commerce's Economic Development Administration. It is being matched with nearly $1.4 million in local investment. Dana Gartst, with the official of Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, says the fund will help make it possible to install new storm sewer pipes in a large section of the city to serve the local business community. U.S. Senator Deb Fisher says last year's severe weather disrupted Valentine's local economy and says the critical federal grant will make stormwater infrastructure improvements to protect Valentine's businesses against the risk of future storms. This project was made possible by the regional planning efforts led by the Central Nebraska Economic Development District with EDA funds to bring together the public and private sectors to create an economic development roadmap to strengthen the regional economy, support private capital investment, and create jobs. Well, you can find more news at krvn.com. Thank you very much, Ellen. Looking at the effects COVID has had on macroeconomics. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Brian Brigman is the Associate Professor of Agricultural Economics at Kansas State University and Director of the Arthur Caper Cooperative Center. So right now the U.S. economy is in a recession, which that means we've had two consecutive quarters of a decline in gross domestic product or GDP growth. And that's where we're at. So the question has really turned to how are we going to recover? Uh, Well, this uh, recession is very different than in the past because it was a pandemic-induced recession. We shut down. We employed social distancing measures. Uh, The economy came to a screeching halt, basically. So when that happened, we had a severe decline. And typically, what you would expect coming off of a decline in a recession is a fairly strong snap back when we move into recovery. And people were hoping that it would be a V-type recovery. Big decline, 
big rebound coming out. Well, there's a lot of uncertainty because of the, what caused the recession, which is COVID-19, the pandemic and shutting down, that consumer confidence was eroded. We still have a lot of those social distancing measures in place. So the question for many economists as you begin to forecast out is, it's likely not going to be a V recovery, but what might it look like? And that's the swoosh. So as consumer confidence builds, we begin to go back to business as usual. Well, we're not there yet. I know people are starting to get more confident. So what will create that confidence? Well, the vaccine would do that. If we had the vaccine, that would build up consumer confidence and then could lead us back to those pre-GDP levels before we went in. So that's the idea of the swoosh and the importance that a lot of economists are placing on the vaccine. And he describes to us some of the biggest hurdles, both ag and non-ag, because of the pandemic. Well, some of the biggest hurdles um, is one is just this is a completely new territory. There's so much uncertainty and uncertainty that we've never seen before. Um, You know, for example, I'm going to go to the grocery store and what am I going to see that is available? Toilet paper's gone. Uh, Maybe particular meat products that are very popular that I'm used to purchasing, they're not available. That's a significant hurdle. And switching for, you know, we are a nation that likes to go out to eat, eating more at home. So the food supply chain, right? How do we work through that? Well, I think by and large, it's held up quite well. Right. So that connection of agriculture to that non-ag space, I think, is showing to be pretty resilient. Um, does it have some you know, hiccups in some places where we could be more efficient? Sure, of course. Every system could be that. And we're learning through it. Um, but we never went and saw a point where there was absolutely nothing within a grocery store. You may not get the products, exact products that you want, but they are coming back online. So we're beginning to you know, get over that uh, big hurdle. So then CFAP2 and other programs going to cause some long-term hurdles. So I saw um, uh, uh, John Newton, who is uh, the economist for uh, Farm Bureau, National Farm Bureau. He had a slide and it talked about uh, the stimulus bubble that is being created. So all the programs that you just named, you know, CFAP, uh, Paycheck Protection Program, all these ad hoc programs that have you know really pushed up net farm incomes for farmers. What is the effect of it? What might it do? Um, in our Ag Lenders Conference, I asked that very question for some of the lenders that were in the room. And the response that I heard from them, uh, if true, is what should be happening. We need to build up our liquidity in order to get through this uncertain environment. We need to make sure that we're not setting business plans in place that these programs always have to be there to support, whether that's expanding the operation in particular ways. No, the signal now is build up that liquidity to see where we're going, because there will be opportunities in the future um, to take advantage of. He talks about not building a business plan that assumes government payments will be there. Right, right. And that was just, you know, kind of to my point. Um, You know, history has shown us. I do a lot of work uh, with cooperatives. I do a lot of work with farmer co-ops. And 
pre-1980s, there was government programs in place uh, that basically used cooperatives as the U.S. government's grain storage uh, facilities. And they were subsidizing uh, cooperatives and farmers to store the grain. Well, when that program went away in the mid-1980s, what you saw was all those co-ops who had built business plans off of those subsidies. Guess what happened to them? They went bankrupt or they merged. They were no longer in existence. So there's plenty of history showing that these ad hoc programs are great and can get you through a tough time right now, but you need to build up that liquidity, um, be very mindful of how you um, spend it. I think with interest rates as low as they are, refinancing uh, can make sense. Um, certainly on the non-ag, so uh, personal, uh, looking at home mortgage rates are exceptionally low. There's opportunities there. Um, you look at, uh, for farms, you know, being able to refinance on fixed loans. That's Brian Brigament with Kansas State University. I'm Susan Littlefield with World Radio Network. With the Business Report, I'm Bob Brogan. Stocks are mostly higher on Wall Street as hope remains that Washington can approve more aid for the economy and after a report suggested the pace of layoffs is slowing a bit, though it remains incredibly high. The S&P 500 was four-tenths of a percent higher in midday trading. It's tacking more gains on Wednesday's rise after President Donald Trump apparently backtracked on his decision to halt talks on more aid for the economy. He said this morning that very productive talks have begun. The number of Americans seeking unemployment benefits dipped last week to a still high 840,000, evidence that layoffs remain elevated seven months into the pandemic recession. Yet economists say they are increasingly dubious about the unemployment claims figures, even though there is little doubt that hiring has slowed and employers have continued to lay off workers. Hundreds of businesses in New York City neighborhoods where COVID-19 cases have spiked were closed as city and state officials moved to quash a coronavirus uptick before it spread more widely. All non-essential businesses in areas designated red zones by Governor Andrew Cuomo were shuttered today, and houses of worship were ordered to operate with no more than 10 people inside. Monolith Materials announced it plans to produce approximately 275,000 metric tons per year of carbon-free anhydrous ammonia in the United States. Monolith Materials uses renewable electricity as part of a process to convert natural gas to carbon black and hydrogen. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts says Monolith Materials' new plant in Hallam will grow Nebraska by creating great-paying jobs. He says the fertilizer it produces will also help the state's farmers. Monolith expects construction on the new facility to begin in 2021. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Bob Brogan. It's fall, which means that we're about to fall in line and deliver lunch to hungry grain truck drivers in central Nebraska. Keep an eye out for us. We'll be driving a Pony Express Chevrolet pickup with the best barbecue and beef around from Skeeter Barn and an ice-cold bottle of water. Get ready for a full belly and to fall in line with KRVN, The River, Cami, and... Skeeter Barnes, the best steaks and barbecue south of I-80 in Kearney. Pony Express, Chevrolet, Gothenburg, and Pony Express Ford in Minden. And Downey Drilling in Lexington, Kearney, and Garden City, Kansas. 
with ball weaning underway, today we're talking replacement heifers. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Cow-calf producers may be thinking about holding back female calves as possible replacements. When considering the genetics of a potential replacement, eventual mature size needs to be prioritized. That's according to K-State's cow-calf specialist, Bob Weber. He says that the feedlot preferences are heavier finishing weights has led to a trend of larger cow sizes. And that, he says, can be an issue in the cow herd level. One of the, the real challenges we have in our current beef complex is you know, our downstream partners from cow-calf production feedlots and packers want them really big, right? So, you know, a 1,500-pound fed steer is not an uncommon beast these days. And uh, it takes pretty good-sized cows to make enough genetic potential into the system to make those kinds of calves. The challenge with that for the cow-calf producer is that now we've produced a, a very large mature weight female that has very high nutrient requirements all through the production year, not just during uh, lactation, but certainly for maintenance 12 months a year. And if, if that requirement dramatically outstrips native range resources, then we have to supplement cows. And we all know cow supplementation is a, a relatively expensive exercise. I think many producers are in the mode of trying to figure out, well, how do I not only decrease maintenance costs, but decrease delivered feed to those cows. And each producer really needs to evaluate those available nutrient resources as part of this process. And that includes what one's grazing resources can economically support, where again, cow size comes in. We know that stocking density, so the number of cows I get to operate on, for most of us, a fixed land area, is very closely related with, with enterprise profitability. So we can't think about just how one cow performs. It's how the whole group of cows perform. And we want to make sure that, that we uh, have good reproductive efficiency and performance and stocking density to really accentuate profitability in cow-calf operations. And it's all about striking a balance between potential cow size that can be accommodated by those resources, while at the same time retaining a profitable level of beef output from the herd. Weber talks about that on The Focus. Cow size happens to be very closely genetically linked to the growth traits in our selection complex. So we've, we've got to figure out how do we take our foot off the gas a little bit, if you will, on selection for growth, particularly yearling weight and mature weight. If we separate the maternal terminal breeding decision, we can make the cows somewhat smaller, more optimum for the production environment, and then use. we can select for more terminal in the terminal type bulls to fill the gap that that selection in the cow side made. In addition, he advises producers not to go too far on milking potential. I think as, as we think about you know, replacement females, in most breeds, we've probably put too much emphasis on particularly post-weaning gain and yearling weight growth that's resulted in us having bigger cows. Another trait that I think is, is really impactful from a, a cow herd efficiency standpoint is, is lactation or milk EPD. Lactation to calves is a pretty metabolically expensive way to put weight on calves. You know, if we've selected for really high lactation potential, those cows have high energy draw, sometimes at a point in time, if we're not careful about when we calve, at really uh, inopportune times in terms of forage production. Those comments coming from K-State's Bob Weber. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. 
KRVN, 93.1 The River, and Cami have always blazed new trails. This year is no different. We're giving you a chance to win a brand new Chevrolet Blazer. And not just any Blazer. A 2020 Blazer loaded with extra details like tinted windows and a custom paint job. For your first look, go to krvn.com and check it out. Be listening because we'll be giving more details on how you can get registered to win the Blazer this fall. We are blazing new trails. Thanks to these partners. Eustace Body Shop, Eustace, Cozad, Lexington, Kearney, Grand Island, and Lincoln. Heartland Chevrolet and Buick, Lexington. Nutrien Ag Solutions. Suretop Angus and Charlet, Farnham. Cornerstone Bank. Member FDIC. With 43 locations serving Nebraska. Central Valley Irrigation. Holdridge, Lexington, Kearney. Nebraska Land, Kansas Land, Colorado Land Tire Group. And Lexington Regional Health Center. Clay Patton on the Rural Radio Network as we talk with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel Zag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter this week in Grain. And John, a little bit of uh, red settlement coming in here after a really strong overnight trade and really a week of strong gains. Was this more just traders positioning ahead of tomorrow's WASDA report to try and reduce some of that risk? Or are we truly seeing a little bit of a correction starting to turn just as we've been so strong in the grains? Well, it's, you know, for, first of all, I think the reason why we rallied so much and squeezed the front of the soybean curve in corn as well was due to her, the hurricane coming up here. Um, we had a, I got an email yesterday from somebody at the soybean association kind of detailing the instructions here on, uh, on what is, what could happen. Now, I don't think that what they were talking about, the worst case scenarios as far as shutting the fort down, you know, maybe putting out force majeure on some contracts, um, that didn't doesn't look like it's going to occur anymore. It sounds like the the storm has weakened a little bit. And I think that's why you saw the back of the curve sell off. So September, I mean, so March is down a dime today. November was unchanged on this crop year. So you're either looking at that, or some the market maybe looks at some forecasts in Brazil and maybe isn't as nervous as, as the bulls were earlier in the week. Regardless, you know, this is a a card game. You're seeing a reshuffling of the deck, so to speak. There's a lot of folks who put bets out over the last two weeks, and really we've seen November options go from almost worthless to really expensive just in three or four weeks now. So, you know, the volatility is going to rain hard for the next two to two to three weeks. I just think given the harvest that we're going to see, I mean, the record amount of speed that's gonna, that we're going to see this crop come out of the ground, it's going to be met with supply. So it's, it's a little difficult to get bullish here at these prices, especially considering the carry. Uh, if you're bullish beans, I think your better bet is to look at like March or July because those are the ones that are cheap. Right now you've got you know, 1050, 1060 November beans, while March trades down to 1020, you know, the story develops in South America that is more bullish, that July, and that July futures contract. Oh, I'm going to buy some, I'll buy it there. And as well, when you're talking about South America, Europe's getting a little bit of rain. Is there anything starting to enter that South American forecast that could turn this story? Yeah, absolutely. So it's this is the tropical season. You tend to see, uh, on my newsletter, if, you, if you're requested, it's free. Every morning, I'll, I'll lead it with a map of South America just so you can see what the forecasts are because models aren't as easily achievable there. The stuff we pay for that I can give out. Um, and, and I think that that is going to dictate kind of a near-term price action. In my opinion, 410, 410 March, March corn is expensive, and, it, and 1080 soybeans would be expensive, especially given the, the spec funds that are already in it. So um, my thought would be instead of chasing it ahead of the report, maybe wait to trade it after the report, especially if we rally. Then I think there's some selling opportunity that could develop especially into the election. John Payne, Daniel Zag Marketing, com. 
Thank you very much, Clay. That'll wrap up midday here on this October 8th. If you miss anything, you can go back and listen to our midday podcast sponsored by Devenny Motors. That can be heard on krvn.com or iTunes.